how are we to live in a culture, in a society in which we are sojourners and exiles, in which the political and social climate is becoming more hostile toward the opposing viewpoints that are shaped by the Word of God? How are we to live in a culture and a society that endorses and applauds and even rewards vitriolic onslaughts in the name of social discourse? How are we to live in a culture and a society that calls evil good and good evil? In which opposition to unnatural and unhealthy and even insane and barbaric movements and lifestyles and practices is labeled hateful and bigoted. How do we live in a culture and a society in which people are fired and businesses are sued and closed and livelihoods are destroyed? through orchestrated attacks of intolerance. Should our goal be to resist through confrontation and revolution? Or should we give up and capitulate and assimilate and lose our identities? Or should we pursue reform through humble submission a pursuit of holiness, and bearing witness to our Savior. Peter says it's the latter, in case you were wondering. Um, he does say there's a war to wage. We're going to see that in just a minute. But it's not the war that unfortunately is being promoted in some circles today. He also says there's a witness to bear. You see, we we as Christians aren't simply to be known or characterized by um, the negative things that we fight against or the things that we abstain from. We're to be known and characterized by the positive things that we do and the positive way in which we live. I've broken down this passage just into two points. We want to look first at our our war, that's just one verse, and then the rest, the rest of the passage tonight, we're going to look at our witness. Uh, children, you'll find your words in their normal place, words like sin, flesh, spirit, live, lives, submit, suffer, and Christ. Um, let's begin by looking first at our war in verse 11. Look there with me. Peter begins by calling his readers beloved. And by doing so, he reminds them of a couple of things. First, he reminds them that he loves them. But secondly, and most importantly, he reminds them that they are loved by God. The Father had set His love upon them. They were His elect. They were recipients of 
His grace that He had lavished upon them, and He had caused them to be born again to a living hope. He had made them adoptable, and He had brought them into His family. He was, you've heard us say this the last few weeks, He was their creator and sustainer, He was their Lord and Savior, but He was also their heavenly Father. And His purpose in reminding them was twofold. He, he was communicating that everything that was to follow was going to arise out of who they were. It was going to arise out of their identity in the Lord Jesus. In other words, He wanted them to know that who they were affected how they were to live. But He was also encouraging them and reminding them of the fact that they were loved He wanted them to know they were loved because most of the other voices that they were hearing were negative. They were hearing things on a daily basis like criticism and insults due to their faith. And he wanted to remind them that there was someone there that loved them. But he also addressed for the second time the fact that they were exiles and then he added the designation of sojourners. Yes, they were a chosen race. We saw this last week, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Um, they, they were citizens of God's holy nation. They were His treasured possession because they had been grafted into the vine. But they remained foreigners and strangers, right? In the world in which they lived and in, in general, but also in the, the Greco-Roman provinces specifically in which they lived. In some cases, some of them had actually been displaced, but in all cases, they were, they were spiritually out of place. They were resident aliens in the world that was not their home. They were transients. They didn't have a permanent status because their actual citizenship was in heaven. And he knew that there was going to be the tendency to forget. They were going to forget who they were. They were going to be tempted to forget um, who loved them. They were going to be tempted to forget where their permanent residence was. And he knew that all of that would result in being tempted to settle down, right? put down roots, get comfortable, make themselves at home by acclimating and conforming themselves to the world. So he urged them. He urged them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He wanted them to distance himself, th- themselves from those passions. He wanted them to separate themselves from the particular lusts and desires that are common in a fallen world, particularly the idolatrous and decadent culture in which they live. And one of the ways that they could do that was by avoiding particular pagan customs and and certain practices that they would participate in that would indulge their flesh. And they would fuel the desires within them. Desires that one commentator said, or, or actually described as being uncurbed impulses and unrestrained indulgences. 
And therefore, they would include, but weren't limited, limited to sexual sin. Whatever the passions were specifically, because he doesn't list them, we do know that he couldn't have been more clear regarding, regarding what um, their intent was, what the pleasures and desires and lusts intent was or were. That intent was they were enemies and they were waging war against their souls. And of course, as those who have been born again, you and I, every bit of that is true for us as well. We are beloved. We are loved by the Lord. We are His elect. The Father set His love upon us. We're recipients of His grace that He's lavished upon us. And He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's made us adoptable. He's brought us into His family. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our redeemer. He's our Lord. And He's our heavenly Father. And who we are affects or should affect how we live. We live in a world that is not our home. And we're tempted to conform, right? To, to assimilate. We, we desire to be comfortable. And there's a battle going on. Because there's a battle going on within us. Between the flesh and the spirit. And sometimes that war uh, is overt, right? It's, it's in our face because what is evil, right? And, and at other times, our flesh craves what is evil, right? It's obvious. But at other times, it's, it's covert, right? It, it happens more subtly. It's more subversive because what happens is our flesh and our passions and our desires actually actually desire or over-desire what is good. And it's not as obvious. But regardless, the lusts and the desires and the passions are relentless. Right? They seek to, to not only enslave us, but destroy us. Therefore, Peter said we need to deny them. We need to, again, remove ourselves from them, refrain from them deliberately and continually over and over and over again. The words I borrowed from the pastor last week are apply this week as well. We're not to indulge them. We're not to play with them. We're not to coddle them. We're not to give them any permission or room to thrive. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is the war that should be waged today. It's not a culture war against those out there. It's a war that takes place in here. It's a fierce and unrelenting war for our soul. And we need to spend the time doing that, not that. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the passions and lusts and desires from which we need to abstain. We need to ask ourselves, from what do we need to flee? What do we need to put to death? And let me say this, let's not give up. Right? Let's not lose hope. We are exiles and sojourners 
who are beloved by God. We are His treasured possession. And in the words of the Shorter Catechism, by the work of God's free grace, we are being renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We are being enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. In other words, we are being sanctified. It is happening by the Spirit. And be encouraged as well that To paraphrase our confession, while this continual and irreconcilable war between the flesh and the spirit rages on, and while the remaining corruption may strongly prevail for a time through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate nature will overcome. It will overcome, and we will grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So if it's okay, I want to mix the metaphors. We need to um, stay the course, right? fight the good fight, finish the race, because God is going to finish what He has started within you and within me. Again, let's not lose heart. So that's the war. That's verse 1. <laughs> the remaining part of our passage, he talks, uh, Peter addresses our witness. Look at verse 12. <laughs> Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So having spoken negatively regarding those things that we're to abstain from, he's now going to speak positively about those things that we need to do and how we're to live. Those who have been born again, those who are Christians, are to live virtuously. We are to live Uh, Lives of exemplary goodness. And we're to do so in the midst of those who are not Christians. And the statement as a whole suggests three things. First, it suggests that we aren't supposed to withdraw from the world. We're not supposed to live in rebellion. but we're to live among and with and beside non-Christians within our community. Secondly, it suggests that there is actually, contrary to what others may say, there is actually an absolute standard of right and wrong, good and evil, honorable and dishonorable, that is discernible by both Christians and non-Christians. And thirdly, it suggests that We shouldn't expect to win nor strive to win any popularity contests when the judges are non-Christians because they're going to speak evil against us regardless of what we do. And yet, he also said that there's a potential for non-Christians coming to a point of giving glory to God as they observe our consistent testimony. The consistent testimony that comes from a lifestyle that's, that, that results from a regenerated heart, particularly in the face of harassment and provocation. When they will give glory is debated, right? Um, most believe, and I believe rightly so, that the day of visitation is the day that Christ will return and come to judge 
And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord and the believers and Christians will be vindicated. But some believe it means that they will come around on the day in which God is merciful toward them and and they come to faith and they confess Christ as Lord. But either way, we're we're to keep the end result in mind, right? We're to to look at what, what the end is And we're to remain steadfast. We're to remain uh, living honorably within our culture and society in which we do not belong and that is hostile toward us. And fortunately for us, he then gives us several practical applications beginning here in verse 13 and then moving all the way through verse 11 of chapter 4. And we're just going to cover two tonight, the first two, and they involve submission to authority. The first is found in verses 13 to 17 and involves our interaction with the civil magistrate. He wrote this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to pursue those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter says they were to submit. They were to voluntarily cooperate with those who execute civil power through Uh, The making of and the enforcing of laws. We are to do so because those in in positions of authority are servants of the Lord. Paul agrees. He called them servants or ministers of God in Romans 13. And the power that they wield comes from Him. It's a power that involves punishment for doing what's wrong in order to discourage evil. And it also involves praise for doing what's right in order to encourage good behavior. So in in other words, the government is a gift from God. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, for those of you that were in Sunday school, when we looked at chapter 20 of our confession and we we looked at this um, Christian liberty, we know, unfortunately, that there are those who believe that the government and the power it has is contrary to our liberty contrary to our Christian freedom. But in reality, because the Lord ordained both, they're not pitted against one another, they don't oppose one another, but they mutually complement one another. And you remember that I said then that the problem is not actually government and authority or power, the problem is bad or unlawful government authority and power. God, a good lawful authority seeks to maintain order and to restrain chaos as it encourages good and discourages evil. But unfortunately, bad and unlawful authority commands or demands that which is evil, or it commands and demands that which it has no right to demand and command. So our responsibility is actually twofold. As believers, we are to submit ourselves to, to lawful and good authority but we're to not submit ourselves to bad and unlawful authority. Yes, there is such a thing as abuse of civil power. We, all, we can all agree with that, but we must keep in mind that the abuse of power does not negate the proper use of power. That means just because civil abuse occurs, it does not mean that we should not submit ourselves or have the right to resist good, lawful civil authority, particularly under the pretense of Christian liberty. 
So in the end, we're to be good citizens of our country, of our state, of our cities. We're to be active and responsible rather than passive and thoughtless in our subjection and obedience. And Peter says we're to do so for the Lord's sake. In other words, when we submit to the governing authorities and we're good citizens, we're obeying and we're serving the Lord, which of course implies, as I said earlier, that we should resist the commands that go against or violate His will. And not only that, Peter said we're to do it because it is the will of God, that by doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And again, there's a debate as to when they will be silenced. There are some that believe it will happen presently and in this life, and that may be, that may be possible, but I don't believe it's necessarily likely, or Peter wouldn't talk about suffering for doing good in the next section. <laughs> and there are others, which I'm one that believes, again, that he's talking about the future, on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, when the foolish who do not fear God and refuse to walk in His ways are going to be judged for their foolishness and ignorance, and they will be left speechless as those who feared and obeyed the Lord are vindicated. And notice in verse 16, he He said this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In other words, this voluntary submission is actually an expression of our freedom in Christ. We are not ransomed and set free through the blood of Christ in order to do what we want and to ignore those in authority or to rebel or to live wickedly as if we've been given a license to live in an evil way. We have been set free to do which is good, that which is good and right. We've been set free from our bondage of sin so that we can be bondservants of the Lord. And one of the things He asks us to do is to obey the civil authority, to submit to the civil authority. And finally, in verse 17, he closes this all out with a summary statement that ties it all up into a nice bow. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So we're to treat everyone with respect and dignity. Everyone is included in that because they're all, everyone is created in the image of God and, and everyone has Right? They, they are potentially brothers and sisters in Christ as far as we're concerned. We're to treat them as such. From the weakest to the strongest. From the least to the greatest. No matter their status, no matter their position, no matter their prominence, even those in authority, we're to honor. We're to honor those who deserve to be honored and we're to honor those who don't. But as Christians, we've, we've said this for the last couple of weeks, as Christians, we have a special relationship with one another, right? We, as a group, are those upon whom God has set His love. 
and for whom the Lord Jesus has laid down His life, and to whom we are lovingly committed. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. We've all been justified and adopted through the work, the person and work of our older brother, the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to say it again, we need one another. And of course, while the emperor is honored like everyone else, it is only God who is feared and worshipped. It is only God who is feared and worshipped. We are beholden to Him alone because He is the only sovereign King whom we serve. The second example he offers involves how slaves interact with their masters. Beginning in verse 18. And today what we need to do is we need to, we need to think in terms of everyday relationships, okay? We need, to, we need to consider those relationships in which we are inferior to those who are superior, like working relationships, where we're employees um, who are inferior to employers and supervisors and bosses. We need to think about um, relationships, kids, you know, in, in school, regardless of what form that school looks like uh, to you, right? You are inferior to those who are in superior, to those who are su- superior, the, the teachers and the administrators of, of, of where you, you, you attend school. And then, of course, even in ath- athletic relationships, right? Those of you who are players are, are inferior to your coaches who are superior, and of course, there are others, but those are the three as I thought around the room. Um, but we need to keep in mind that while there are principles for us to glean, right, and to apply in these particular relationships, the analogy is limited. And it's limited because if, if we're mistreated in any of those relationships today, we can get out, right? They're voluntary. We can end them, and then we, of course, have recourse, if need be, legal or otherwise, that can and should be pursued should the circumstance warrant. But, but we need to remember that most, if not all, of these slaves that Peter was writing to were involuntarily confined, and they were living lives in which they were being verbally abused physically beaten due to their faith, and as a result, they were suffering unjustly, physically, emotionally, and mentally. They were were experiencing physical, emotional, um, mental anguish, and they could not change their circumstances. They had no recourse And it's into that hopelessness to which Peter speaks. And he says this in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, 
When mindful of God, one endures sorrows for, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So rather than give us the green light to rebel and to go against those who are in authority and to avenge the wrongs that we've experienced because of our faith, Peter said it would be better for us to submit ourselves to submit ourselves to and to cooperate with those who are superior out of honor and with respect. And the reason is when we suffer for our sin, there's no value. But when we suffer unjustly, particularly because of our faith, our suffering is a gift. Let that settle there a minute. It's a gift. And it's a gift in three ways. One, remember from chapter 1, verse 7? Our trials and our afflictions that we endure are a means by which the Lord strengthens our faith. And as we endure, we receive glory, praise, and honor. The second way it's a gift is, if you remember from verses 14 to 18 in chapter 1, right? the suffering is, is a means by which you and I can exhibit our freedom and our growth in holiness. And third, he says it's evidence, it's a gift because it's evidence that we are being identified with Christ, the suffering servant. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Peter says we've all been called to suffer. And we ask why? And the answer is because Christ has suffered for us. He is our perfect substitute. And, and His work has paid not only our debt, but it has appeased the Father's wrath on our behalf. But this suffering, His suffering, did, more than, did more, even more than pay our debt and appease the Father's wrath. It also left us an example Right? His suffering established a pattern that we're to follow. The word example is a word that was used to describe a template that they used to use to, to trace over, right? to create a, an identical picture, to reproduce something. So Peter's saying that Christ is our example. He's our template. And He is to be traced we're to model ourselves after Him. We're to follow and walk in His steps. That means our, our suffering, right? In the face of rejection and slander and, and, and all other things because of our faith, right? Our suffering is a gift because having been united to Christ, 
Our suffering is a means by which we are identified with Him and we follow His example. We walk in His steps even as the world continues to assail us. Why? Because they're really assailing Him through us. And how did He respond to that suffering? How how are we to model or what are we to model? Well, as David Strain pointed out, and I'm going to throw him under the bus, not me, Peter didn't hand out WWJD bracelets. He didn't hand out those bracelets and then tell people to imagine what Jesus would do if he was in their shoes. He did something significantly different. And he pointed them to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Lord Jesus was not only our substitute, he was our sinless substitute. Though he was oppressed and afflicted, though he was unjustly tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, he was crucified, he never once offered a verbal or physical resistance. In the words of a pastor I heard this week, he spoke the truth without a flamethrower and offered his wrist to the chains. He simply continued to entrust himself to the Father, trusting himself to the one that he knew, the just one that he knew would eventually make all things right. He would carry out justice. And why did he suffer? He suffered for our willful rebellion and perversion. He suffered and dealt with every aspect of our need. He bore every moral and spiritual wrong that we have committed and all the guilt that was ours was placed upon Him. He took us to His cross. He died for our justification and our sanctification. Every And anything, every and anything that alienated us from God, He handled in our place, on our behalf. We were straying like sheep. And He is, as our shepherd, He sought us, He found us, He hemmed us in, in our souls. He has restored our souls and He is now keeping them. How How are we to live in a culture and society in which we are exiles and sojourners. In humble submission, pursuing holiness, and bearing witness to our Savior. And thanks be to God that it is Christ and His cross that gives us the power to do just that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.